Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein. I'm your host, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer in chief, your Victorianologist, also your urologist, Michael Ian Black, two time NFL champion, nine years in the NFL, two rings, nine years, two rings, and PhD candidate in biology. So it is a pleasure to welcome you, as always, to the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. I am delighted to be here with you and a little bit tuckered out, and I will tell you why. The theme for this season so far is our relationship with nature. We have discussed my plans to go camping. Well, I took another step into the natural world today because my dear bride, Martha, well, uh, to backtrack for a second, we had a hurricane here a few weeks ago. It just swept up the East Coast, knocked out power all over the place. We had a downed tree that came down our hillside. We have a little hillside that leads onto the road and was blocking, or should I say obscuring, thanks guys, obscuring our view when we left the driveway so it wasn't as safe. And uh, my dear bride Martha said to me, will you get rid of that tree that's blocking our view. And it was a tree, like a, like a, you know, like a sizable tree. And I said, of course, I said, sure, happy to. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not going to do that. How am I going to get rid of a tree? It's like a huge thing sitting there on the hill and I'm supposed to get rid of it. How do you even do that? Chainsaw? Well, I bought a chainsaw, not for this task, for other tasks. I bought it and could not get it to start. 
I primed it. I was doing it. I was, you know, yanking on the cord, could not get it to start. And frankly, the thing terrified me. I put it away. I've never used that chainsaw and I wasn't about to use it for this. So yesterday she says, I thought you said you were going to clear that tree. And I said, yes, I will. I will. Thinking to myself, I won't. I won't. But this morning, I got it into my head that today's the day I'm going to clear that tree on that hillside. I said to myself, I said, self, if you're going to be an outdoorsman, pitting yourself against nature, against merciless nature, the least you can do is clear a goddamn tree off your hillside that is endangering the lives of your loved ones and yourself. So I got out a little saw that we have, and I went over to that hillside. And let me tell you something, friends. I started hacking away at that tree, and not just the tree, but all the other brush that has accumulated over the years on that spot, the vines and small growths and brush. I guess that's what you call it, the brush. I was clearing brush. It took me hours, maybe an hour and a half, but that's more than one hour, maybe two hours. My hands are sore. My arms are sore from lugging all the uh, chopped down limbs and brush away from the hillside. And I am enervated, which is to say weakened, which is a word that we heard in the first episode of this podcast. I am enervated, but at the same time, invigorated because I beat nature. I kicked nature right in her stupid ass. I kicked her ass. We have dominion over nature to a point. In my case, that point is a very short point, but it's, but it's bigger than it was. And so I'm feeling like I can accomplish tasks that don't involve speaking into a microphone for half an hour at a time. I can, I can do things, which is, you know, that's a good feeling for me. Will I do things in the future? No, no, because I'm going to hold this task over her head for years. When she asks me to do something, I will say, but I cleared the brush. Like she said to me today, uh, when I got in and I was sweating and exhausted, she said, squash needs a bath. And I said, okay. I did not say I will give squash a bath. I said, okay, meaning I acknowledge what you're saying and I'm not going to do a goddamn thing about it. Letter two, last episode, Walton, not Dr. Frankenstein, but he identifies himself as Walton, uh, wrote to his sister, Margaret. Maggie, from St. Petersburg in Russia. He's, uh, he's an explorer. He's going to make millions. He's going to find the Northern Passage. He's going to tame magnetism. He's going to do it all. He's Elon Musk. Letter two to Mrs. Saville, England. Archangel, March 28th, 17- How slowly the time passes here, encompassed as I am by frost and snow. Yet a second step is taken towards my enterprise. I have hired a vessel and am occupied in collecting my sailors. Remember, he's going to sail up to the North Pole. 
which will not be discovered for another century. Or they know it's there, but nobody will set foot on it for another century. Those whom I have already engaged appear to be men on whom I can depend and are certainly possessed of dauntless courage. But I have one want which I have never yet been able to satisfy, and the absence of the object of which I now feel as a most severe evil. So, the first sentence of the first letter also contained the word evil. Uh, there were forebodings of evil. Now, Marlowe is saying that uh, the absence, absence of this object is a most severe evil. What is that object? I'm going to take a sip of water and then we'll find out. I have no friend, Margaret. Well, that's interesting, knowing what we know about what will transpire. He is going to create life or attempt to, and in doing so, let us assume he is trying to create a friend. In trying to rid himself of this severe evil, the lack of a friend, perhaps he will create a more severe evil, an abomination, a monster, an insult to nature. And God, I have no friend, Margaret. When I am glowing with the enthusiasm of success, there will be none to participate my joy. If I am assailed by disappointment, no one will endeavor to sustain me in dejection. I shall commit my thoughts to paper, it is true, but that is a poor medium for the communication of feeling. I desire the company of a man who could sympathize with me, whose eyes would reply to mine. You may deem me romantic, my dear sister, but I bitterly feel the want of a friend. I have no one near me, gentle yet courageous, possessed of a cultivated as well as of a capacious mind whose tastes are like my own to approve or amend my plans. How would such a friend repair the faults of your poor brother? You know, it's a different time. Obviously, this is the 18th century, and much has been made of the differences in how men communicate to other men and about other men as opposed uh, back then as opposed to our time right now like like you remember that whole thing about uh, Lincoln being gay because he shared his bed for years with his his friend uh, Richard something I think and so there was all this kind of revisionist history. Well, Lincoln must have been gay, blah, 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 blah. But it was, you know, A, A there weren't a lot of beds. B, it was common for men to sleep together, literally, if not, you know, uh, metaphorically, not metaphorically, uh, you know, fucking, fucking is what I'm trying to say. Um, and, you know, it's a different era. And as you may or may not know... I am the author of a new book called A Better Man, A Mostly Serious Letter to My Son, which explores these very ideas, notions of masculinity and masculinity's evolution. And I'm no expert on it by any means. I'm not an academic in this or in anything else. My only expertise lies in playing football, of course, nine years, two rings. But it's notable to me how somebody could write like this, a man could write like this about other men, even a kind of, you know, 
the idea of another man, because this isn't a real person he's describing, he's just describing what he wants in a friend. And today, like you wouldn't write something like that unless you were talking about a romantic interest. In fact, he uses the word romantic. You may deem me romantic, my dear sister, but I bitterly feel the want of a friend. And, you know, when I read things like this, the way men describe other men, it makes me feel kind of wistful to have, like, I would love that kind of open relationship with another man. Well, I don't have it. You know, that, that just that very exposed, vulnerable relationship. Obviously, platonic relationship, because that's what we're talking about here, with another man. I've got friends. We all have friends. You, you, I mean, if nothing else, I'm your friend, dear listener. I am your friend. So you've got me if nobody else. But to have this kind of platonic ideal of a friend of somebody to whom you could pour out your heart as a man without feeling embarrassment or shame. How lovely that would be, right? Without having to put a kind of ironic detachment on it or distance yourself from it. To love another man without apology or self-recrimination. How great would that be? I've got friends that I love, of course, but I don't feel like I've ever been able to sort of cross that barrier the way I've been able to cross that barrier with some of my female friends and, of course, my wife and, you know, and, and girlfriends that I've had. It's a different thing and a kind of relationship that I feel like we are sorely lacking as men in our modern culture. So I can understand his want of a friend. I'm not sure I agree with his characterization of friendship in the sense that he's looking for somebody to whom he can unburden himself, but seems to express no desire to uh, receive another's burdens. Like the way he's looking at a friendship, it's like, this is what this person could do for me. And that seems kind of shitty. Like, I get it. Like, you know, everything's transactional to a certain degree, but there is, there is no sense of, I would like to be there for another person. Like, it's all about me, 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 me. I'm going to invent this electric car. I'm going to invent this chip that you put in your brain. And wouldn't it be great if I had some dude that I could be like, dude, how great am I? And the dude could be like, you're so great, dude. Like, that is what he's looking for. <sighs> I am too ardent in execution and too impatient of difficulties. But it is a still greater evil to me that I am self-educated. And he talked about this before, that, that although he, he comes from a wealthy family, his education is didactic. Like he, he taught himself all this shit. Autodidactic. I think that's the word I'm looking for. Autodidactic. Self-learner, right? I, I'm not even going to look it up. That's how confident I am to say that he's an autodidact or considers himself one. But, you know, he taught himself biology and geology and sailing and whatever. Just every, anything that he might need to proceed on this grand dream that he had. For the first 14 years of my life, I ran wild on a common and read nothing but our Uncle Thomas's books of voyages. At that age, I became acquainted with the celebrated poets of our own country. But it was only when it had ceased to be in my power to derive its most important benefits from such a conviction that I perceived the necessity of becoming acquainted with more languages than that of my native country. Now I am 28 and am in reality more illiterate than many schoolboys of 15. 
It is true that I have thought more, and that my daydreams are more extended and magnificent, but they want, as the painters call it, keeping. And then there's a footnote. I like these. If you were, uh, if you were a fan of the first season of Obscure, it took me ages to start looking up the footnotes to see what they're talking about. And it, and it enhanced the reading experience, I have to admit. So I'm, I'm not going to dilly-dally. I'm going to look up our first footnote, and it's attached to the word keeping. Um, um, okay. The maintenance of the proper relation between the representations of nearer and more distant objects in a picture, hence the maintenance of harmony of composition. Okay, why is that important? Okay, hold on, let me go back. It is true that I have thought more than in my daydreams are more extended and magnificent, but what? But they want keeping. I guess what they want is, uh, is proper perspective, right? Is the maintenance of the proper relation between the representations of nearer and more distant objects in the future. So he's saying, like, I have these dreams, but I have to keep everything in perspective. I want to go back to for one second. Indulge me, if you can. And the word poet. At that age, I became acquainted with the celebrated poets of our own country because it was pointed out to me um, by, and I'm going to look it up real quick. Bear with me. <sighs> ah, it was pointed out to me by Patreon uh, or Patreon, my listener, Kate Merrick who said regarding the introduction, which I read in the first episode, and I said it was by P.B. Shelley, who is, of course, Percy Bysshe Shelley, Bysshe, B-Y-S-S-H-E, who was Mary Shelley's husband and a celebrated poet, okay? So the introductory remarks, let me go back, I'll just, the preface by P.B. Shelley, 1818. So presumably that's by Percy Bysshe Shelley. And it's very confusing to me because in this preface, Shelley, whether it is M or P. Shelley, describes or, or, or writes this in the first person. I'm just quoting here. I am by no means indifferent to the manner in which whatever moral tendencies exist in the sentiment of characters, blah, blah, blah. I passed the summer. So this is what's interesting. You know, whatever, whichever Shelley, and, and it's signed by Marlowe, which is interesting. So it's... You know, it's just confusing to me. The preface is, it says by Percy Bysshe Shelley, 1818, right? But it's signed by Marlowe. The book is originally published anonymously. So the question is, who wrote this preface? Because it starts by saying, I have not considered myself as merely weaving a series of supernatural terrors. So clearly, whoever wrote this is claiming authorship of the story itself. So... One thought is that Mary asked Percy to write this preface, knowing that the book itself was going to be published anonymously. Percy was like, fine, I'll write it as you, sign it as Marlowe. And then subsequent editors uncovered that it was by Percy Bysshe Shelley. So it's just confusing, but it is uh, nevertheless somewhat funny to me that our Walton, who was the author of the letter in the book, talks about the celebrated poets of our own country. All right. All of that is confusing, I understand. I don't mean to be confusing, but I am confused and I am looking 
for understanding. Perhaps you listeners have an understanding that I do not. All right, let's do, uh, let's take a little break and then we'll come right back and do some more reading of books, this book. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back in Obscure, let's read on. I greatly need a friend who would have sense enough not to despise me as romantic and affection enough for me to endeavor to regulate my mind. Yeah, we all need that. Don't despise me, but like me enough not to endeavor to regulate my mind. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to be. Just accept me for who I am and shut your mouth. Just love me and don't criticize me. Love me unreservedly. This is what I say to Martha constantly. By the way, Martha thinks I'm ludicrous by wanting to go camping. She thinks I'm, she, just yesterday, we were out in nature hiking and she said something like, I can't wait to see how you do when you go camping. And there was such derision in her voice, such mockery. She thinks I won't be able to hack it despite the fact that I hacked down an enormous tree by myself today, using nothing but my own muscles and willpower. She thinks I can't survive out there by myself. Doesn't she know I bought some dehydrated chili beef and mac? Doesn't she know that? Of course I can survive. Back to the book. Well, these are useless complaints. I shall certainly find no friend on the wide ocean, nor even here in Archangel. I don't know if it's Archangel or Archangel. I mean, you know, I don't know. Among merchants and seamen. <laughs> seamen. Yet some feelings, unallied to the dross of human nature, 
beat even in these rugged bosoms. My lieutenant, for instance, is a man of wonderful courage and enterprise. He is madly desirous of glory, or rather, to word my phrase more characteristically, of advancement in his profession. He is an Englishman, and in the midst of national and professional prejudices, unsoftened by cultivation, retains some of the noblest endowments of humanity. I first became acquainted with him on board a whale vessel, Finding that he was unemployed in this city, I easily engaged him to assist in my enterprise. The master is a person of an excellent disposition and is remarkable in the ship for his gentleness and the mildness of his discipline. This circumstance, added to his well-known integrity and dauntless courage, made me very desirous to engage him. A youth passed in solitude, my best years spent under your gentle and feminine fosterage, has so refined the groundwork of my character that I cannot overcome an intense distaste to the usual brutality exercised on board ship. I have never never believed it to be necessary, and when I heard of a mariner equally noted for his kindliness of heart and the respect and obedience paid to him by his crew, I felt peculiarly peculiarly fortunate in being able to secure his services. So he's talking about the master who I guess is, you know, kind of like the the drill sergeant there on the ship, the guy, the stage manager, the guy who's just telling everybody what to do. I'm the master. You listen to what I say or you get the lash. But in this case, this master does not give the lash. Instead, he is a gentle and kindly master. And our Walton, who grew up under the tutelage of his gentle, feminine sister, cannot get used to the idea of brutality at sea. He himself has a gentle nature. He himself is gentle and kind, or, you know, so we are led to believe by his own word. But it will be interesting to see if he has a kind of breaking bad evolution as he becomes madder and madder, right? As he becomes the mad scientist. If it, you know, it's still unclear to me who Frankenstein is because this is R. Walton. So maybe Frankenstein is somebody else entirely. I don't know. But regardless, we'll see how our narrator's disposition changes over the years of the story. So he finds this lieutenant, he finds this master, and interestingly, he doesn't seem to think either of them could be his friend. But, you know, friendship, I guess, maybe means something slightly different. Or maybe there's maybe there's an element of I'm the boss. I you know I'm hiring these guys. I can't be their friend. Yeah, that's just good HR right there. That's just good human resources right there. He's just saying, look, I'm your boss, guys. As mu- as much as I like you, we can't be friends because I'm the guy in charge. Fair enough. He's still talking about the master. I heard of him first in rather a romantic manner from a lady who owes to him the happiness of her life. This briefly is his story. Some years ago, he loved a young Russian lady of moderate fortune, and having amassed a considerable sum in prize money, the father of the girl consented to the match. I wonder how he got his prize money. What does that mean, prize money? Did he win it on a game show? Prize money, was he a boxer? How did he, well, he, he, okay, so whatever. The guy, the master made some money, and as a result, the father was like, okay, duh, you can marry my girl. This is, this was a good this was a good this was a good Russian accent. You can marry my girl and I will give you her endowment. 
This, this is great, what I'm doing right now. Just great. He saw his mistress once before the destined ceremony, but she was bathed in tears, and throwing herself at his feet, entreated him to spare her, confessing at the time that she loved another, but that he was poor, and that her father would never consent to the union. My generous friend... Okay, so now he's describing the master as his friend. My generous friend reassured her, the suppliant, and on being informed of the name of her lover, instantly abandoned his pursuit. He had already bought a farm with his money on which he had designed to pass the remainder of his life, but he bestowed the whole on his rival together with the remains of his prize money to purchase stock, and then himself solicited the young woman's father to consent to her marriage with her lover. But the old man decidedly refused, thinking himself bound in honor to my friend, who, when he found the father inexorable, quitted his country, nor returned until he heard that his former mistress was married according to her inclinations." What a noble fellow, you will exclaim. He is so, but then he is wholly uneducated. He is as silent as a Turk, and a kind of ignorant carelessness attends him, which, while it renders his conduct the more astonishing, detracts from the interest and sympathy which otherwise he would command. Well, that's quite a story, and indeed quite a romantic story. As described, the guy goes on the prices right or whatever and wins a bunch of money. He's like, I, I, there's this girl I like in Russia. Uh, I don't know her, but I like her from afar. I met her once. I want to marry her, but she's got some money. The father won't agree to it because I don't have any money, but now I won on the game show. I've got some money. They agree to get married. The father agrees to the marriage. She shows up and she's like, "You please don't marry me. I am in love with another. And he goes, uh, and the guy goes, in Russia, another loves you. Um, that was a Yakov Smirnov structure, as you probably know. Very, very funny. Um, she's like, I love this other guy. Uh, please don't make me marry you. But the guy doesn't have any money. And, and our hero, the master, is like, yeah, but I, I bought this farm. And I was going to spend the rest of my days there with you. But instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the farm or the, this guy the farm and all of the, the equipment and the rest of the money to boot. You go. Have a great life. The hell is that? I mean, it's very nice, but seems nutso, doesn't it? Seems like a little too romantic, a little too good to be true. It feels like the kind of thing a teenager would write as a romantic story. You know what I mean? It's just a little bit too good. And I think, you know, am I being a little prejudiced here myself against the, the mind of a teenage girl writing this, all this stuff? Yeah, maybe, because I just don't buy it. I don't buy that anybody would do that. Uh, you, yeah, you, you say, okay, I, you don't have to marry me, and here's some money so you can marry the other guy, and fine. But, you know, you're not going to give up everything to this girl that you met once on behalf of this guy you've never met. You just wouldn't do that. I wouldn't. I mean, I'm a good guy, sort of. I'm not that good. Not that good at all. 
Should I stop here? I'm going to stop here. You know, we're in the middle of the second letter. Uh, let me see how much more there is in the second letter. Not that much. Uh, I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. So uh, he's in Ark or Archangel. He's got his ship together. He wants a friend. He's met these couple guys. He's hired them, the lieutenant, the master. We're learning more about his character. He's excited to go. He's excited for this adventure, but only if only he had somebody that he could share it with. We know he's going to meet this somebody. Maybe the somebody he meets is Frankenstein. I don't know. I don't know who Frankenstein is at this point. So it's, you know, already there's a mystery. There's a mystery at the heart of this. Who is Frankenstein? I can't wait to find out. Maybe we'll meet Frankenstein soon. Maybe Walton is Frankenstein. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe Walton becomes the Igor to Frankenstein, right? There's the Igor in the movies who's, you know, always the hunchback and crazy looking. Yes, master. Yes. You know, that kind of guy. Maybe he's, maybe that's who Walton is. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. They're setting off on this adventure. They've hired the crew. They're getting ready to go. Just like I'm getting ready to go camping. And the two, like me camping and an Arctic adventure to the North Pole are basically the same thing. He's hired a ship. I bought a backpack. It's more or less the same. What will happen? Will they set out on the journey? Will something prevent the journey? Will he meet Frankenstein? Is he Frankenstein? Something evil this way comes. What is that evil? We will find out next time on another spine-tingling episode of Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein, is produced by Robin Lynn, Mary Shimkin, Jennifer Brennan, and myself, Michael Ian Black, recorded in places as far and wide as California and the wilds of Connecticut and spots in between. Original music by Craig Wedrin. Join us at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, where starting at $5 a month, you can support this podcast and get access to all kinds of obscure goodies, including early episodes and writings and musings. There's also bonus podcasts. There is our semi-regular book club. All of it can be yours at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.